Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. folks, I'm Chelsea Jack, a host on New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Roanoke-based journalist and author Beth Macy about her new book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Her new book examines the opioid overdose and overprescribing epidemic in Virginia, from the southwestern coal fields to the wealthier suburbs pictured on the front cover. Her two previous books, Factory Man and True Vine, which were also based in Virginia, were named among the New York Times Book Review's 100 Notable Books. Beth is joining us from Roanoke, Virginia, remotely. She lives in Roanoke and spent much of her journalism career there as a newspaper reporter for the Roanoke Times. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Beth, and for writing such a thought-provoking book. Thanks so much for having me. Beth, you are in Roanoke, right? Yes, yes. I've lived here almost 30 years, so... One of the ways I've been able to tell all three of these books is that I've, unlike a lot of journalists that move up and leave town to go to a bigger market, I've just stayed because I love it here. And, and I know you're from nearby, so you get what I'm saying. Yep, I grew up in Bedford County, right near you. I know, I know. Just a hop, skip, and a jump. As a writer and a journalist and an aspiring book writer, when I was, you know, just starting mid-career, I kept questioning myself about should I leave and go to a bigger place? And all three of these books only came about because I stayed in the same place, which I, I just think is um, worth mentioning, you know? I didn't cover the Oxycontin epidemic when it broke out because our police, uh, our courts reporter did at the time, but I knew him and then the people down in those areas knew me because they had been reading my work, you know? And so the fact I mean, it just helps to build trust because it's so important not to just be a journalist parachuting in because you want to get the context right and you don't want to stereotype. My God, you don't want to stereotype. You sound like someone who's written on Central Appalachia before and thought about the politics of representation. Your comments also afford a great segue into my first question, which is a relatively simple one to kick it. What led you to this particular book project? You mentioned previous relationships and how those helped you get started, but why did you start looking at the opioid epidemic in particular? Yeah, so in 2012, I was still a newspaper reporter. Um, I, I quit that job in 14 just to write books, but in 2012, I was like the family's beat reporter at the Roanoke Times and I had this great editor, like just a dream editor that would let you spend time so you could really figure things out. And at the time, the summer of 2012, I started writing about these two families whose lives had been upended by heroin in, in, in the wealthy suburbs, uh, um, ironically called Hidden Valley, you know, which is because the problem was hidden there for so long. And these two classmates, one died of an overdose and the other was about to preparing to go to prison for his role in his classmates' uh, overdose death. And so I spent the summer tracking these two families whose lives had been upended by heroin. And the first response everybody had was, holy crap, wealthy white kids in the suburbs are doing heroin. 
And so I wrote a three-part series. Um, you know, it got a nice response. I think a lot of people were shocked. My editor and I both hoped it would have more of an impact on the community. But really, honestly, what I think happened was a lot of parents just kind of boxed those two mothers off as a an example of, quote, bad parenting, right? Like, where did they go wrong? And not really considering that uh, this didn't happen in a vacuum. There was a lot of kids left behind still using when Spencer Mumpire went to prison. And, of course, I wasn't yet writing books, but one of the things I do with people I get to know during the course of following them for very many months is I keep up with them. I mean, I have hundreds of texts exchanged with both of those mothers, hundreds. And so when I was casting about for a second book idea after Factory Man, I asked both my editor and my agent, this was like 2013 before Factory Man had come out. I was starting to think about myself. I said, what do you think about a book on heroin? I just did this three-part series and they both went heroin? So just remember, in 2013, it wasn't like in the news every day. And my agent, who's in New York, actually said, oh, that's old. That was like a 90s problem in New York. Right? Like, Roanoke's just late getting it. Like, you're late getting everything. Right? Like, we missed out on the trend, which is so funny when you think about it. But by the time I proposed it again in 2015, of course, it, you know, Sam Canoni's book Dreamland had come out. Um, the Deaths of Despair uh, economists had, 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 had shown that, you know, half a million people were dead from these so-called uh, diseases of despair and, and particularly white males um, who were not college educated. And it was all starting to make sense. And so it's sort of, I think of this book as kind of Factory Man Part 2 because a lot of the reporting I did in the distressed communities were the same things I was seeing at the end of Factory Man, which is a book about the impact of globalization in these marginalized communities that were mainly um, centered around either an extractive industry or just one industry like furniture making. Thank you. Your comments remind me of a prominent theme in the book, specifically the disruptive economic and historical transformations that you connect with the emergence of the opioid crisis in Appalachia. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those transformations? I start. I started seeing that in Factory Man, of course, because so that's about you know when all these furniture makers got put out of work because the factories went either to China or you know in the wake of NAFTA, the textile mills closed, and you had a lot of textile mills out in Lee and Wise Counties too in the coal fields. But in the coal fields, you know, double whammy. Not just the textile mills closed, but also the coal mines were shutting down. Um, the, you know, and we have a very bad. Uh, in our country, a retraining um, program called Trade Adjustment Assistance. Um, I, I believe, you know, hardly anyone even takes it because it's like the people who design it never talk to a dislocated worker. So what, what you saw in the 90s and then in the aughts, and coincidentally at the same time as the pain as a fifth vital sign movement, this idea erroneously promoted that we're under-treating pain, uh, widely under-treating pain. You saw people being uh, out of jobs and, and desperate. And when you combine those two things, it was like a nuclear bomb, the arrival of OxyContin, a drug that it never, uh, we've never had so strong an opioid. And people learned immediately how to um, do an end run around the time release mechanism and get the full bump of the euphoria 
from an 80 milligram or 160 milligram in the early years, which is just, they learned, learned to do that. But the other thing that I learned from just people in the cover themselves, users, was that they quickly learned that if they sold them, it was a way to pay their bills. So what you would see was people reaching out to doctors, perhaps, uh, they call it shopping, perhaps going to multiple doctors, this is before prescription monitoring programs, getting, especially if they were on disability, with a Medicaid card, they could get a prescription for a dollar or two, and then they could resell some of the pills for a dollar a milligram. And it, it was like moonshine in some ways, you know, it was like a side hustle. My research pays attention to not just how we talk about but how we practically handle moments when the lines blur between so-called legitimate and illegitimate or legal and illegal economies and substances. There's a politics to legitimacy and legality in this country. I want to put that idea on the table, but let's talk a little bit about the subtitle of your book, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Can we talk a little bit about that decision, that subtitle? Yeah, the one thing that bums me out about the subtitle is that the book is also about um, the lack of treatment that's available, and it's also about these heroic people that are fighting back. So that's, it was just hard to get the whole book in one subtitle, and my editor and I, you know, I said it should be drug companies because, you know, these these distributors are also being sued, and, um, you know, that subtitle ended up being the winning one. Right. Um, but most of the book, because I picked these three communities to spotlight in Virginia that I believe represent the arc of the narrative in a microcosmic kind of way, you know, that stand in for the rest of the company, I went to Lee County in the Coalfields, Lee and Wise counties, you know, the westernmost counties in Virginia, which are in central Appalachia. And the only way I could stand to live in this material was to write about the people who were fighting back. In each locality, you see kind of heroic people. It was just so dark otherwise. I mean, just for my mental health, it was the only way I could stand to report this book. And so in Lee County, you have this doctor, Dr. Art Menzi. He's a country doctor. He runs a, he works in a federally qualified health center. Um, He's married to an activist wife who grew up in a coal mining camp just in Kentucky, just across the mountain. And from the very earliest days, he's writing Purdue Pharma, telling them, we have high schoolers ODing on OxyContin in our library. So some of these were people he had immunized as babies. He's, he's writing to them letters saying, I fear that we are the sentinel area for a burgeoning opioid crisis, just as New York and San Francisco were with HIV and AIDS. I mean, and he, he's telling them, what, and this is in 1998, he reports that, uh, according to a survey of juniors at Lee High School, an astonishing number had already tried OxyContin. It had only been out two years. And the company maintained that it didn't even know that it was being abused. The first cop I interviewed, who I think was the first that I could identify to see OxyContin being diverted and abused uh, on the streets. Some, a confidential informant leans in his car and he said, this feller's got this new thing up the street he's selling. It's called OxyContin. 
And he said, you could walk around the streets and you could see people with green and orange smudges on their shirt sleeve. So they're abusing it right away. The smudges are, the green was an 80 milligram oxy, put it in their mouth, um, suck it for a while. The time release mechanism would uh, melt off. Then you could crush it for the full bump, not span it over 12 hours, but right away. The company says they didn't know that was happening when all these people were telling them otherwise. I'm curious, did you talk to anyone or try to talk to anyone who worked or works at Purdue as you were writing the book? I did not. I put their point of view in from the perspective of uh, what they said in court, from what they told the media at the time. Um, I tracked down a relative of, um, one of the executives that was, was charged in the 07 in the, in the plea agreement Mm -hmm. because I wanted to see, and I knew they weren't saying they were giving out their stock quote, but I wanted to see at the human level, um, what they had to say about it. And as Mr. Udell's son said, you know, my father was, was, was not it was never proven in court that my father did anything illegal Uh, still he said that and um i thought that was enough i I felt like getting a a son's perspective was in keeping with the rest of the portraits that i portrayed in the book like the company was only giving out stock quotes i mean were they really going to open up to me i got a son to open up to me wasn't shocked by what he said. I, I did have some empathy for him. You know, he's talking about his dad had to check in with his probation officer before he, you know, crossed state lines. And yet there was still this very, uh, this denial of, uh, of responsibility, right? And you see that denial in so many corners of this book. You see it with the drug dealer that I interview in prison. He, what he did had nothing to do with the moment when uh, a needle touched a vein, according to him. According to him, he was keeping people from driving to Baltimore to uh, where they would have, you know, been in more danger to buy their drugs. He was importing it to stay idyllic Woodstock, right? And so you just see so much of um, dodging and weaving of responsibility throughout the story. There's a productive tension in the book that I want to return to, namely the idea of Appalachia as exceptional and Appalachia as unexceptional with regard to how this epidemic has emerged across the United States. In other words, there are times when you seem to make the case that Appalachia has experienced exceptional moments of industrial dislocation that have resulted in exceptionally devastating manifestations of a national public health crisis. Then there are moments in the book where you insist that this epidemic has devastated American communities across the country, not just in economically distressed communities in Southwest Virginia or the Appalachian coal fields. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that tension? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this epidemic, one of the ways it's different than other drug epidemics, um, which we think of the crack cocaine crisis starting in the inner city, this becomes more apparent first in rural areas like Appalachia, like Machias, Maine, where there were a lot of fishermen. Um, You know, those were the two first areas in the country where it was known that Oxy was causing a lot of crime, the the diversion of Oxy. And, um, And still the 
overdose rates are highest in these distressed communities. But one of the reasons we put Hidden Valley on the cover of the book in that stark black and white photography is because Yes. I mean, look, those really nice houses with the mountains in the background. Somebody told me yesterday, she said, the first time I saw it, I thought it was just Appalachian. Then I looked and I went, whoa, those are really nice houses. Mm -hmm. This can happen anywhere. So it's not just um, in distressed localities where where the OD rates are, are higher and also treatment is harder to get and also they're politically unimportant places so that when somebody like Art Van Z and Sister Beth Davies start complaining to the company, it's easy just to dismiss them. Oh, they're just these rural outliers and sort of portray them as kooks, right? But in the suburbs where, you know, this starts in Roanoke City, where I was reporting from, it starts becoming aware in the mid-aughts and the early 2010s that um, this has really uh, caught on big with um, teenagers. And there's a big overlap with uh, misuse of ADHD medications, prescription drug misuse in general. Um, the ki there's this one cell that I try to follow of opioid users from Hidden Valley and Cave Spring area, which is Southwest County. It's one of the wealthier areas in, in our region. And, um, and it just sort of almost a viral spread of the use of these drugs, such that one researcher who's NIH funded to be studying uh, Appalachia and Oxycontin, all of a sudden hears her kids at Hidden Valley coming home from school and saying, oh, people... We're having farm parties now, P-H-A-R-M, and kids are trading these pills around, largely that they're taking from their grandmothers and mothers' medicine cabinets. And, and it's just like with people everywhere, once this drug has its hooks on you, you've got to get more of it in order to be uh, not dopesick. And so that combined with the pill for every ill you know, mentality, and um, especially among youth that don't have productive and the things they're excited about otherwise. I would also argue, I didn't write about this in the book, but I've been thinking a lot about um, some of the users that I continue to chat with, you know, the, how the cell phone changed everything. It made them a lot, it allowed them to hide their addiction from their parents uh, more than it would have, you know, in the coal fields, people are like literally walking away with weed eaters and garden tillers to, to pawn and sell for drugs. In Hidden Valley, it, the, one of the reasons it came out so much later is because people, including the kids, had the money to hide their addictions. Like they could, they could say, oh, my iPad was stolen. Well, no, you, you took it to the pawn shop and got money to buy drugs. They could hide it from their parents that with cell phones, with, with their money. And the, the few parents who were in on the dirty little secret were too ashamed because of this huge stigma um, to let their neighbors know, you know, and they had money to send their kids away to rehab too. There's one family I interviewed that had two heroin addicted sons. Um, this is a surgeon and his wife. They spent $300,000 sending their two sons to various rehab and aftercare programs. I mean, people in the coal fields didn't have that by and large. Mm. And so it, it, it represents another manifestation of it. And also I just, 
you know, I have a chapter called Objects in the Mirror Are Closer Than They Appear. I just wanted everybody to realize we're all vulnerable. We're all connected. I'm glad you brought up a chapter title. I wanted to ask you about the structure of the book. As you went about this book project, how did you think about where to begin and end? How did you think about what to include and what to leave out? Yeah, so what I did when I got the go-ahead, my agent thought it was a good idea in 2015, go do some research and we'll write a book proposal, was I went back to some of the sources I met in 2012, including um, assistant U.S. attorney who mainly oversees the heroin uh, uh, cases, uh, two of them actually. And I said, what's going on now? This is three years later. Well, it's just gotten worse. Can you tell me about some individual cases? Of course, they can only talk about cases that are buttoned up and finished. They can't talk about ongoing cases. So one of them starts telling me about this amazing thing that happened, the shocking thing that happens in the Shenandoah Valley, which I know you're recording on now too, um, wherein this twice convicted drug dealer lands uh, to work in this great seeming reentry program and sets about bringing heroin in a bulk from Harlem. And almost overnight, as the prosecutors told it, this small town of Woodstock, which is not a distressed community, it's one of the healthier kind of farming uh, and more diversified communities, uh, economies, uh, so it's about turning a handful of users into almost hundreds overnight. And that was super interesting. And then he pulls out this chart and he's got 84 people and some of the names at the bottom of the pyramid are crossed out because they died of overdose deaths. And he's got these two dealers at the top and he starts telling me the stories of them. And I'm just, I'm fascinated. And so I realized, well, I could go find some of these people. I could interview them in prison. I, you know, I, they were focused on Ronnie Jones in particular. And so I knew that was one story I wanted to tell. I knew Lee County was another story I wanted to tell because, uh, not just because of Central Appalachia, but also because it's um, the region from which uh, the government uh, centered its investigation that led to the plea agreement in 2007 in Abingdon, which is sort of the gateway to the coal fields. So I knew I had that. I wanted to track down some of those parents whose kids died very early on all over the country and who were sort of loosely organized against relatives against Purdue Pharma. I knew I had those two stories. And then I knew I had this Roanoke piece. So then it was like, oh, how did they fit together? And I had to just figure that out by talking to my editor, by talking to editor friends of mine, reporter friends. Um, and the only way I could keep it, I don't know if you can see my um, some of my timelines and stuff. I do see those on the wall. Yeah, so these are, this is actually kind of my to-do list, but I have this product called Wizard Wall. And the only way I could keep it straight in my mind was to have like three sections for the three communities. And I, at the beginning, I was just writing down the names of the people I interviewed because I interviewed so many people. I, you know, you forget what, what you call a document with your notes on it because you forget who was who. But so I had that all down. And then I started to see kind of this pattern emerging, how I could talk about how it began there and then it, it, it kind of made itself more known in, in the wealthier areas. And then more recently, because it's true more recently, it went to idyllic small town. There, literally, there's no place in America you can go now where this isn't an issue. And I thought the Woodstock case um, uh, was a good example of that. But I was, I was having lunch. I hadn't figured out the third piece yet, how the three stories fit together. I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a historian, a professor at Virginia Tech. And she goes... I get that third story, but 
I don't get how it relates to the other two. And then, uh, you know, just hard question. I was kind of ticked off. I was like, damn, Eli, asking me this question I can't answer. But it made me really think. Well, first it made me panic for a day or two. And then I figured it out. It's really just chronological. But the way I wrote this story initially was because I, they're, they're mainly chronological, but there are overlaps. Um, I wrote them in the three, with the three communities, coming back to the coalfields at the end because I thought because they had been the most impacted and the longest, I thought they deserved the final word. And um, my editor, uh, when she sent um, her six-page single-space memo back to me uh, after she read the first draft, she, she suggested a new prologue and then her other big change was, I mean, she had many changes. She, she did a great job. The book is so much better now but was that it had to be strictly chronological. She said there has to be a very good reason if you're going to break the power of chronology, you know, with the exception of a short digression to explain something. Um, so, and I just, I said to her, I said, I didn't think you could do that. I think I thought it'd be too confusing for the reader. And even after it was edited and buttoned up, I still wasn't convinced that it wasn't going to be confusing, but I'm writing for the average reader. I think the statistic was something like 52 or 54% of Americans now know somebody who's suffered with this or had it in their own family. I mean, I'm trying to write for the hundred percent of people, people who don't know anything about it because of that whole idea objects in the mirror closer than they appear. I mean, we all need to be vigilant about this issue and about our own health care. We just need to be better consumers of healthcare. The idea of writing for the public for ordinary people is worth talking about given the topic of your book. The opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic wasn't always as ubiquitous in the news as it is now. It wasn't always something that our political representatives, regardless of party, talked about all the time. It wasn't always as present as it is now. There seems to be no shortage of devastating portraits of addiction and suffering online, on broadcast news, and Yet, despite all the attention being paid to the crisis, I'm skeptical of whether increased awareness driven by media coverage has yielded meaningful change on the ground. What do you think? I mean, I worry about it. I mean, a lot of money has already been Congress approved. What was it? Six billion, I think, total through the Cures Act. Uh, Only 25 percent of that's funneled down to communities yet. Um, Only 33 states have passed the Medicaid expansion. Um, that's the number one tool for getting a treatment to people with opioid use disorder. Um, I went back to my original notes with Tess Henry. We haven't talked about her yet, but her story takes up the final third of the book. I got very close to her. Sorry about the dogs barking. I reread recently an interview I did with her in October of 2015, the first time I met her, wherein she describes how she initially got addicted. She was a uh, had recently uh, dropped out of college at UNC Asheville. She was working as a waitress, doing some experimentation with pills, and but was not addicted. And um, not saying she was perfect, right, at all. But as she tells it, she got a case of bronchitis, goes to an urgent care center in, in Roanoke at Towers Mall, run by Corillion, the one I take my kids to when they get sick on the weekend. And 
they, the doctor there gives her two 30-day prescriptions, one for uh, cough syrup with codeine and the other for hydrocodone for sore throat pain. At the end of the 30 days, she is addicted. She is um, having diarrhea, sweats, everything. And she, so she goes to a waitress friend who, whose boyfriend is a known drug dealer and says, you've got to get me um, some um, uh, morphine-based pill product, right? I think it was Roxycodone at the time. Oxycontin had already been reformulated and it wasn't being as abused as much at that point. But I said, how did you know to do that? She said, I Googled it and I thought, holy crap, I'm addicted. But back to that first interview, her point at the very beginning, she's in the throes of her addiction. She is on uh, Subutex at the time. She was on a buprenorphine. She says, what we need in this country is an urgent care center for the addicted. And so I think about that as like a syringe exchange, a low threshold, a place that a health department can run or uh, a mobile unit that goes out into neighborhoods where people uh, are less likely to have insurance and more likely to have an opioid use disorder and does disease testing because hepatitis C is going to be a tsunami in this country in 10 years. It's going to be a tsunami. So many people don't even know they have it. Um, And in a low threshold, low barrier way, allows people to get access to things that can protect them until they're ready to stop or ready to get into a treatment program. More importantly, access to medication-assisted treatment, which study after study shows is the best shot people have uh, for not dying. And there's so much emphasis. um, I, I believe it remains the number one barrier to turning back this crisis Um, the fact that um, people who are on MAT are still stigmatized as being unclean or replacing one drug with another drug, despite all the scientific evidence. And this whole rehab industry that grew up around alcoholism, which, fine if you have alcoholism, but not getting the job done in the age of fentanyl. So, I mean, if I got to... If I got to make, wave a magic wand with President Trump, I would say, let's get those dollars down to the communities and let's open urgent care centers for the addicted, as Tess said. The title of your book is thought-provoking. I wondered whether it was meant to remind readers that anyone can become sick at any point in their life, that we're all vulnerable. It's provocative in other ways, too. It's in your face, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess, but... You know, I I think constructively it makes you think about human health as an equalizer of sorts. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. You've also mentioned that the title is supposed to get us thinking as readers about the gap between criminal justice, law enforcement, and the healthcare system in this country. The epidemic has taken such advantage of this gap, right? It's just like filters right into all those places where criminal justice and healthcare are are misaligned. Before we go, my last question for you is, is there anything you want to flag for readers? Maybe something that you just want to reiterate as a major theme in the book? The idea of us being better consumers and better listeners and um, open to, to what's really happening on the ground because our country is a vast and very diverse place. That's a great note to end on. Beth, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your new book, Dope Sick. 
And to those listening, thank you for joining us here at New Books Network.